0: Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Thomas Douglas Alexis and today we will be revisiting and celebrating the life and work of an accomplished screenwriter and director named Robert Benton. This episode will be dedicated to the life and work of Robert Benton, a man of many, many, many talents, was a talented cartoonist in his youth, and then became an accomplished screenwriter, worked on uh, many classics like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, What's Up Doc, a great screwball comedy directed by Peter Bogdanovich, uh, worked on the script for the original Superman film in 1978, did a lot of great work as a director as well, including his debut film Bad Company, The Late Show, Kramer vs. Kramer, Places in the Heart, and Nobody's Fool. With the great Paul Newman. We'll be talking about all those today on the show. Uh, But first things first, a little housekeeping. So, we are available on the Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts, and the Spotify. You can find us on all those platforms. Please download, subscribe, uh, leave some comments if you'd like. Those are always welcome, as long as they're constructive. Don't be a douche. Uh, And also, you can find us on the Instagram at closed setpodcast. That's closed set Podcast. I'll be putting up updates for all the new episodes, little teasers for, for, for what's coming up, and so on and so forth. Uh, and you can shoot us a DM if you'd like as well. Those are always welcome. And you can also reach us via email at closed setpod at gmail.com. That's closed setpod at gmail.com. Any uh, questions, comments? Uh, constructive criticism any recommendations if there are any directors you would like to see covered on this show at some point uh, please feel free <clears throat> you know what to do And with that said, let us boogie. Now Robert Benton's a bit of an exception or at least so far because uh, he is the fourth our fourth director that we've covered so far and uh, he is the first one who is still with us. <laughs> uh, he hasn't crooked yet but he is uh, he's 89 years old and so he was born on September. In September of 1932, in Dallas, a lot of sources, pretty much all of them, have him listed as born in Waxahachie, Texas, uh, but that is incorrect. In an, inter- in an interview with the um, I think it's the Writers Guild of America or the Writers Guild Foundation, one of those, uh, he said himself that he was born in Dallas, and shortly after birth, the, he and his family moved to Waxahachie, which is where he was raised. Uh, born in September of 1932, uh, America was in the throes of the Great Depression at this time, so he he lived through it. In, uh, in rural Texas down south. And Robert Menton was dyslexic, did not do very well in school. And growing up, I guess, in a rural area in the 30s where there, people really just didn't know much about dyslexia as a condition, uh, many of the people he grew up around actually just thought he was slow. And uh, by his own admission, he, uh, he kind of scraped his way through school and uh, made it through high school by the skin of his teeth. I lived in the bottom one percentile of my class.
1: I spent every summer in summer school uh, I doubt if I would have made it through high school if my mother hadn't played bridge with many of the high school teachers, and it would have broken up the bridge game if they
0: had flunked me. His father was a very antisocial man. According to Benton, he had the kind of dad that instead of instead of keeping tabs on him, as far as the schoolwork and stuff all, and all that was concerned, uh, the two of them actually spent a lot of time at the movies together, which is where uh, which is where his love of his love of movies was born, and. Uh, after high school, he eventually made his way to the uh, the University of Texas and then for his master's degree at, the Univ- at uh, Columbia in New York, which is where I believe he still lives today. And uh, he was a talented, talented cartoonist. He loved to draw as a kid. What I couldn't do
1: early on was read. My attention span was very short when it came to reading. But I could draw. It was a left brain, right brain issue. So the drawing, I could keep my attention focused.
0: And after university, after he'd completed his studies, he actually went on to work for Esquire magazine for, for a good long while. He worked in the art department, and that was where he met um, his writing partner, David Newman. The two of them worked on many, many celebrated scripts together, and we'll get to all of that in a bit. David Newman was an editor at Esquire. Uh, so Benton worked in the art department. He uh, He served in the Army for a time in the 1950s, and then after his service... Went back to Esquire, ended up becoming head of the art department uh, until he was fired in the mid '60s. He had had a he had had a beef with with an editor at the magazine, and that uh, that marked the end of his time there. But uh, I've seen a few of his illustrations, and he was a pretty good cartoonist, I got to say. So he met David Newman at Esquire. The two of them became writing partners, which is you know pretty funny, given that Benton was a dyslexic. I mean, by his own admission, uh, he said himself that he he can't spell, he can't punctuate, and yet he and he and David Newman went on to make went on to make many, many great films together, collaborated on some some great scripts, the first of which was the classic Bonnie and Clyde, which came out in 1967, directed by the great Arthur Penn, with Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, Gene Hackman, Estelle Parsons, Michael J. Pollard's fantastic, fantastic cast, Warren Beatty notwithstanding. And um, <laughs> uh, Warren Beatty actually produced the film. He helped get it made. And according to Benton, it was initially intended for François Truffaut, the great French director. I mean, that all ended up falling through, Arthur Penn took over, and um, it covers, of course, the, um, the escapades and the relationship of the real-life uh, bank robbers, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. And the film was a huge success, Benton and Newman actually got nominated for their screenplay at the Oscars, and the two of them later went on after that to uh, work on a screenplay that was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the great director who directed uh, All About Eve and a bunch of other things. Uh, this was a western called There Was a Crooked Man, this came out in 1970. And uh, it was not long after that that Benton made his directorial debut in 1972. Benton's first film was called Bad Company. This came out in 1972. And this is, uh, this is Benton making his debut as a director at 40 years old, keep in mind. And a couple of late bloomers we've had so far. Uh, George Roy Hill was in his early 40s when he directed his first film. Uh, Carol Rice, who we covered on our previous episode, he was in his mid-30s by the time he made his first feature, although he had made some, he had made some documentaries before then. Uh, so a lot of late starts thus far, and so bad company. A lot of people call it an acid western. The term was coined, uh, I believe, that the film critic Pauline Kael is credited with coining the term, because it kind of debunks the old myths of uh, of the old west, and you know it sort of um, it kind of chucks away all those sort of romanticized ideas that that you see in the, the western films of old. So basically, what uh, bad company is about, it follows a young man, played by um, Barry Brown, the young Barry Brown. Who flees the Civil War draft in America? He joins a gang of young misfits led by a young Jeff Bridges, who is also dodging the draft. And these band of this band of little, little misfits, this band of petty crooks, decides to head west in search of uh, freedom, in search of prosperity, and so on and so forth. But of course, many mishaps happen along the way. There are betrayals and some dangerous and violent encounters. And of course, they find neither freedom nor prosperity. It's all right, Jake. Just eat it. It's kinda hard to
2: enjoy my meal with a shotgun barrel pointed right at me. You do complain, don't you, boy? I think I'm scared of you. You're dead broke, you talk awful
1: big. I should have plugged you back there. You're so full of shit, you're stinking up my yard. Take it easy. Take it easy. All right. You get. of it. Get. All you can get. Let's go. Come
2: on, Jake! I ain't done yet. I paid for it, damn it. I'm gonna finish it. Damn turn of greens or sour anyway.
0: And it's a great one. Cast, let's just run through the cast real quick before we get into the nitty-gritty of this film. Uh so Barry Brown is in the lead. He was um in his early 20s when this was made. Um, it's a great performance from him, but a very, very sad story. The um, Jeff Bridges, of course, went on to achieve great success, and he's one of, I think, the best actors ever. I mean, no two performances are alike. He is always great. And um, the guy is just, honestly, just a master thespian without all the pretentious, you know, sort of art-do-shit, which is pretty great. Doesn't think the sun shines out of his own ass. And he, Jeff Bridges was 23 years old in this, and it's uh, a great performance. He was coming off The Last Picture Show, the Peter Bogdanovich film, and uh, he had done Fat City, also the great John Huston film with uh, Stacey Keach and Susan Tyrell. But Barry Brown was the lead. He plays Drew, the young man fleeing the draft. And um, unfortunately, Jeff Bridges and Barry Brown went to, in two very, uh, very different directions after the making of this film. Jeff Bridges, like I said, went on to achieve great success. Barry Brown did not, despite a very good performance in this film. He ended up playing the lead a couple years after this in the Peter Bogdanovich film Daisy Miller with Sybil Shepard. Unfortunately, the film didn't do well. Uh, it was a bit of a dud and um there uh there wasn't much work coming uh coming Barry Brown's way after that and uh, he ended up committing suicide in 1978 and unfortunately his his sister Marilyn committed suicide as well many many years later and they had a very difficult upbringing and uh yeah just a very very tragic death uh rounding out the the rest of the cast in this film is David Huddleston who is in who was in the Big Lebowski with Jeff Bridges so Jeff Bridges plays the dude in the Big Lebowski and David Huddleston plays the Big Lebowski of the title. He was also in Blazing Saddles, and in this he plays the uh, he plays the head of this uh, this gang of outlaws uh, in the prairie that Barry Brown and Jeff Bridges and their gang encounter on their way out west. And it's a uh, he only has a couple scenes, but it's a uh, but uh, it's great. They're they're great. He he really makes the most of them, and uh, John Savage is in this as well. John Savage was in the Deer Hunter. He had a small part in Do the Right Thing. Very good actor. has been around a very, very long time. Jerry Hauser, a young Jerry Hauser who was uh, later in Slapshot, which we talked about on our George Roy Hill episode, one of my favorite movies. Jim Davis plays a marshal that, that Barry Brown later gang, uh, teams up with. Jeffrey Lewis, the great character actor, who we also mentioned in our George Roy Hill episode. Juliet Lewis's father. He plays one of the members of uh, David Huddleston's gang. And Ed Lauder does as well, another great character actor. Uh, he shows up in a small part in this as well. And uh, I really, really like this film. I gotta say, this was... Uh, so Benton directed this. He and David Newman co-wrote the script together. Uh, and we're going to talk about their partnership and the making of this film in a little bit. But I want to talk about the uh, the movie itself first. So it, And it's, it's really great because it kind of sub- subverts a lot of the tropes of old western films and the, all these sort of myths around the old west. Going out there and finding prosperity and these noble gunmen... People just moving out there and this whole manifest destiny thing, just going out there and expanding and prospering and looking for riches and and all that good stuff. However, this film kind of debunks all that. I mean, these people are headed out west and along their journey, they run into several people who have been out west and they've lived to tell the tale, but they've kind of rooted, they've come back much worse off than they were then when they left. So it kind of shits on that whole, <laughs> that whole notion. And um, for much of the film, you just see this gang kind of wandering through this barren prairie wasteland. They're kind of in limbo for for most of the film. Like I said, these, these are and you have to remember this is basically a gang of kids. These are children. They're and they, they're and they're ill-equipped to sort of to just make it through this journey and they suffer so many setbacks along the way. I mean, they're starving. They run into David Huddleston's gang.
3: Come on, Jake.
2: Shoot the son of a bitch. My oh, boy. Let me give you a little piece of advice. If you're going to pull a gun on somebody, which happens from time to time in these parts, you better fire it about a half a second after you do it, because most men ain't as patient as I am. Hmm. Ain't lost my touch yet. Well, what are you jackasses standing around for? Clean them out. Here it is, almost lunchtime. I ain't got the change together for breakfast yet.
0: The journey gets tougher and tougher, and that spawns a series of betrayals within the gang. The gang ends up sort of eating itself out. And gradually, the story just becomes more and more about self-preservation. It's every man for himself, and you have Drew, who's a bit of like a straight-laced, sort of goody-two-shoes type, and you see him sort of uh, gradually get corrupted into somebody without principles, because he's constantly running up against people without principles over the course of his journey, whether it's people in the gang, whether whether it's rivals or other people he runs into.
2: This here's all I could find. Two dollars and fourteen cents. I'd like to get my hands around the throat of the son of a bitch that told me to go west. Hey, there's uh, beans and molasses and uh, jerky and a little bit of coffee. Ah. You boys must have brought along a cook from Paris, France. <laughs> <laughs> Take it all. Come on, Jackson. Goodbye, boys. Just think of us as some terrible nightmare that come and went. By nightfall, you'll forget we was ever here.
0: And at the end of it, without giving too much away, he and Jeff Bridges have betrayed each other, or they've both been dishonest with each other in any case. And neither of them makes it out west. And as much as they resent each other for their betrayals, their respective betrayals, uh, the two of them realize they're much better off with each other than without each other.
1: Listen, Carl, let's clear the air if you've ever heard of that. And
2: what I mean is I ain't mad at you no more. What? I consider we're even. <sighs> we're even? You stole my goddamn money! You hid it from us.
0: Oh, shh. You lied every minute since I've known you. You let me take all the chances. You let your pals near starve to death bullshit is us about that hardware store just to get in with us.
1: Bullshit us right to the end. Well, oh, you dirty bandit, you know what Come you on,
2: are. Come on, you're you- a two-faced shit-kicker and I'm glad to finally know it. But like I said, now we're squared. I figure I paid you back for all your lying.
1: <laughs> you know what I done with your money? What? I spent it on whores, just cause I knew that's what you wouldn't have done.
2: Now let's bury the hatchet and talk turkey.
0: And the film just sort of ends with the two of them owning what they've become and forming a sort of tenuous alliance and uh, becoming bandits, basically, and turning into the same people that they encountered over the course of their journey. And uh, it's a great one. Like I said, Jeff Bridges, always great. Even so early in his career at the age of 23, he's fantastic in this. And uh, Barry Brown was really great as well. The supporting cast is awesome. Uh, And this was actually... This film was shot by Gordon Willis, who shot the Godfather and Clute, The Alan J. Pakula mystery film, which is which is one of my personal favorites. And uh, there's a great long tracking shot at the very beginning of this film when Barry Brown and Jeff Bridges characters first meet. Uh, Barry Brown's character flees the draft. He he's sort of uh, he leaves home and he makes his way to Missouri. And it's there that he meets uh, he meets Jeff Bridges character. And there's this long sort of walk and talk, this one shot walk and talk of the two of them just sort of walking down walking down the thoroughfare of this town. And Jeff Bridges is laying it on thick, and they're talking about, you know, him him fleeing the draft, and so on and so forth. And then, they, of course, they go into an alley, Jeff Bridges cold cocks him, and it's revealed that he's he's a small-time grifter. He's a con man. Uh, and, as I've mentioned on this show before, I, lo- I love just long, sort of, single-shot takes, whether there's camera movements or not. Just, I don't know, those, those sort of, those long one-shot takes always just sort of stand out to me. And so... A little bit about the making of this film. This was produced by Stanley R. Jaffe. So he had formed his own production company, Jaffe Films, and this was the first film he had made with his new production company. This was after he had been president of Paramount. This film had actually been in development while Jaffe was still at Paramount. Robert Benton and David Newman wrote this one together. And what happened was, the two of them had been writing partners for some time. They had collaborated on many, many great and very successful projects. And according to Robert Benton, David Newman had a growing desire to become a director. And Robert Benton did it. He thought it would be he thought it would spell the end of their partnership. And so the two of them had what Benton described as the only very big fight they ever had in over their over their friendship. And it ended with the two of them agreeing to each write. The two of them would collaborate on two screenplays and they would each direct one of their choosing. And so Benton was going for a little bit of a self-sabotage because he he <laughs> he chose to direct this Western, this acid western. One, because he knew it could get made for cheap, especially because he was going to be casting young actors, young kids, not bankable stars. And two, because studios and production companies were still making westerns at this time. And so he figured this would get made one way or another. Because he had never directed before, nobody would ever want him to direct it, and so this would be a little short-lived experiment. He hoped David Newman would get over this sort of this hankering, this urge he had to become a director, and the two of them, after getting these little projects made, would sort of go back to their partnership and, you know, continue as they were. And it turns out that, in fact, the producers were interested in him directing, and they had him come do, they had him come do a test, a test run as a director on the Paramount lot. And it was Barry Brown and John Ritter, the late John Ritter, who uh, were who the actors in this test. And Benton tells the story of going to the Paramount lot, working on this test. Knowing what he wanted to do, how he was, how he was going to direct it. And uh, the results of that test were surprising to him. And after
1: about an hour, I thought, if I don't do this for the rest of my life, I don't, I don't think I can stand it. Now, it wasn't the power. But was prom- I promise you, 90% of directing is about damage control. 90% is A- about? No, about damage control. Damage control. It wasn't about power, and it wasn't about seeing my vision realized. Any number of people could have done it as well or better than me. It was that I got an instinct on that day, on that test, that this crew was a kind of family. It, there is, for me, a thing of walking onto a set when you're in the middle of shooting and and, and there's a, it's home Bellini once said every sound stage in the world smells the same hmm. and i think that's true it's it's there is a there is a, a family in the in a larger sense than a conventional family it's big sprawling and unruly but it's a family
0: and knowing all of this, and Benton has talked about about this himself. This uh, because a big key of the of Bad Company is this is this this friendship between the two main characters, Barry Brown's character Drew and uh, Jeff Bridges' character Muncie, and the uh, their their friendship, their relationship, very very much parallels uh, Benton's and Newman's. And B- Benton has talked about it himself. It is
1: a picture about a friendship. This picture being the Bad Company. Bad Company is a picture about a friendship. Two, it's about the partnership, and as witness, the central character, his name is Drew, which is past sense of draw, which is what I used to do. And it's it's a very, it, it, the, you you could see a lot about our relationship in it. Okay, it was oh, it was in that
0: sense very, not literally autobiographical, but it was it drew on it drew on that. You see the two characters in the film, well into their journey, the two of them end up parting ways and much like what Benton thought about his partnership with Newman, Benton was convinced that he and David Newman were much better off working together than apart. and um, that's basically what happens at the of, at the end of Bad Company. The two of the, the Barry Brown and Jeff Bridges are much better with each other together than they are alone. In this dangerous sort of barren prairie no man's land, uh, despite their betrayals, the two of them are have a much better chance of getting by and surviving than each of them does on their own. And it's a great film, a great debut. And 1972 was a good year for Robert Benton, it turns out, because even though Bad Company wasn't a huge success, and it's gained popularity over the years, and it's much more, uh, it's much more highly regarded today than it was when it came out. Although it did get some good reviews, uh, 1972 was still a very good year for Robert Benton and David Newman, because the two of them worked on the script for What's Up, Doc? The Peter Bogdanovich film. It's sort of a ode or like a revival of the old screwball comedies of the 1930s, and it's got a great cast with Barbara Streisand, uh, Ryan O'Neill, the great Madeleine Kahn. So 1972 was a productive and successful year for Robert Benton, which leads us to his sophomore effort, The Late Show, 1977. Now, this is a great one. It's basically, it kind of falls under this sort of neo-noir mystery category, and it stars Art Carney, the great Art Carney, who we'll talk, talk more about him in a minute. Art Carney plays an old, plays a former cop, And now a private investigator. He's getting up there. He's kind of sickly, unhealthy, living in a hovel in Los Angeles. And his ex-partner shows up at his door and is ultimately murdered. And so Art Carney's character basically tries to solve his partner's death, his partner's murder. All while finding an unlikely partner in Lily Tomlin's character who plays a failed actress. And she's hired Art Carney's character to locate her cat, her missing cat. So... You have the murder mystery that Art Carney is trying to solve with his former partner, and you have this pain in the ass, talkative and loquacious, failed actress <laughs> who's desperate to find her missing cat. And then, of course, you know, the plot thickens, and it turns out the two cases are connected, and shenanigans ensue, and so on and so forth. And Art Carney and Lily, Lily Tomlin form this sort of offbeat and unlikely partnership, and it's awesome. I mean, it's an it's um, it's kind of an old an ode to the old sort of uh hard-boiled noir mysteries of old Hollywood Um, but that said it doesn't take itself too seriously and it's funny the dialogue is very clever very snappy kind of what you would expect of of a neo-noir film or even an old noir film and yeah it doesn't take itself too seriously it kind of takes kind of sort of takes the piss out of the genre a little bit uh, but it's great fun I love the pace of it and it's very meat and potato storytelling in the sense that and that's not to put it down I mean everything is very tight there's no fat in there and it just keeps, everything just keeps moving on at a great pace. And it's a fantastic cast and some great performances. So let's talk about the cast. Art Carney, like I said before, who was in The Honeymooners with the great Jackie Gleason. Uh, he was in The Odd Couple on Broadway, did a lot of work in the theater. Um, had a bit of a career resurgence later in life because he did, uh, he was in the film Harry and Tonto, Paul Mazursky's film in 1974, and ended up winning winning an Oscar for it that year. He had had so, he had, had some problems. I mean, he was a longtime alcoholic and he had some he had, a, he had a drug problem as well, barbiturates, methamphetamines. And he had he had several sort of failed attempts to quit drinking, and his marriage had fallen apart. And uh, he had actually spent time in a sanitarium, and he had actually gone cold turkey, or he had quit drinking in any case, towards the end of the making of Harry and Tonto, I believe. So by this time in 1977, I believe he was clean. Uh, but yeah, lots of, lots of personal trouble, lots of substance abuse trouble for Arn Carney. Uh, and it's a, but it's a fantastic, fantastic performance of his, and um, and the critics loved his performance, and rightfully so. He's um, he's, he's great because he's kind of a bit of an anachronism in this film. Like it's an ode to the old noir films, and his character kind of looks like he was plucked straight out of that era and thrown into into late '70s Los Angeles, and even he even has the lingo, and you know he talks like a man of that era.
1: Before we do any talking, better warn us, cheesehead. Next time he tries anything with me, I'll kill him. I won't give him a
0: chance. I'll kill him. Okay, Pop. Now that you've got that off your chest, what's your business? So it's a, he's a guy who's kind of out of his element, trying to trying to sift through this this mystery, and he's fantastic in it. And Lily Tomlin, like I said, plays the failed actress who forms this sort of unlikely partnership of his. She becomes his partner in, in solving this mystery, and Lily Tomlin is fantastic in this. She and Art Carney are a great duo. They, she's, she's a perfect comic foil to him. And this was a couple of years after she had been in uh, Robert Altman's film Nashville, and she had been nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for it. She and Robert Altman did a good bit of work together, and she was in. Uh, more recently, she was in uh, the series Grace and Frankie with Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas, and uh, Sam Waterston. Really talented woman. Who else is in the cast? We got Bill Macy, not William H Macy, Bill Macy, who was a Brooklyn guy. Uh, lived into his mid-90s. He was in the sitcom mod with B. Arthur in the 70s, and he was also in The Jerk, the Steve Martin film. And he's really great in this. He plays this sort of nickel-and-diming, small-timing, kind of an, sort of an ally to Art Carney and Lily Tomlin in this mystery. He and Lily Tomlin are friends or acquaintances, and he kind of acts as an informant of sorts for Art Carney's character. But he's a shifty fucker.
2: Wardwell showed up out here about six years ago. Went to work for Guy, had a sweet little fence operation out in the valley A couple of years ago, guy retires, buys himself a condominium in Florida.
1: Birdwell buys him out. That's it? What'd you expect, going with the wind? Charlie, three people get chilled. I expect more than a condominium in Florida.
0: Nothing's ever good enough for you. Uh, And he's he's really great in this. Eugene Roche, who was in Slaughterhouse-Five, the George Roy Hill film, which we talked about in that episode, Boston guy, he's in this, and... um, he plays a shady character who's kind of a fence for stolen goods. Who has something? Who plays an important role in this whole murder mystery? He's great in this. Joanna Cassidy plays his uh, plays his wife. She was in Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, not the remake. Uh, John Considine plays a henchman. Ruth Nelson plays Art Carney's landlady in the film. Ru- uh, Ruth Nelson was uh, was a key member of the Group Theatre, in New York City. And this was actually her first film in close to thirty years. I think uh, this came out in 1977. This was her first time working on screen, I think, since 1948, if memory serves. So this was uh, this ended a really long layoff from, for her. And rounding out the cast, in a very small part, is the great Howard Duff. Uh, so Howard Duff plays Art Carney's ex-partner, and it's his it's his murder that sort of sets the whole thing in motion. And Howard Duff was a fantastic actor. He was in two two great Jules Dassin movies in the 40s. He was in Brute Force. Uh, the 1947 prison drama, and he was also in The Naked City, the great uh, the great noir mystery, and he's a fantastic actor. He's, he's a small part in this. He doesn't have a whole lot to do. And he was also married to the great Ida Lupino, who we're going to be covering uh, in the, the, uh, the not-too-distant future. And uh, we're going to talk about Howard Duff in, in a little bit as well. He's going to come up a little later. Uh, so it's a fantastic cast, and this was the first time Robert Benton wrote the script on his own. He and David Newman did not collaborate on this, and uh, he had taken it to Robert Altman, I believe... He may have taken it to Robert Altman, hoping Altman would direct it. But Robert Altman ended up agreeing to produce the film, and Benton ended up directing it himself. It was edited by a guy named Peter Appleton and Lou Lombardo, who had done a lot of work with Robert Altman. Uh, and the um, so production started in the spring of 1976, and it ran through November. And uh, it's interesting. I heard Benton talk about this in an interview. He didn't he didn't say a whole lot about The Late Show, but he did like in. He said the film was about his father, in a sense, and I guess he likened Art Carney's character to his dad, because, like I said before, his dad was very antisocial, a very reserved man, I should say, not very talkative, man of few words, which is exactly what Art Carney is uh, in this film. He's a loner. Total contrast to... and kind of broody, you know? in Total contrast to Lily Tomlin's character, and he kind of likened the dynamic between those two characters to that of his parents.
3: If I were really truthful with you, and I'm going to be truthful... Uh, you're pretty, in my mind, you're a pretty old-school kind of person. You know, kind of old-fashioned and everything. And I don't have to tell you that I'm kind of weird around the edges. I mean, you're you're a slob, too. I mean, to be truthful, and and I'm a Virgo, and it kind of makes me a little crazy. But don't you see the combination? It It's what makes something interesting, because-
1: Listen, doll, let's get one thing straight. I'm a loner. I always have been a loner. I was alone when I was a kid, I was alone when I was married, probably why we broke up. by myself now because I like it that way. Nothing personal, but I don't, I don't like to talk a lot.
0: There's
1: I know what too you damn mean- much talk in the world as it is.
0: And uh, not many people went to see the film, unfortunately, uh, but it did get great reviews, and Robert Benton got nominated for an Oscar for his screenplay, and rightfully so. And Lily Tomlin also got nominated for Golden Globe for, uh, for Best Actress in a Comedy. And uh, it's a great performance from her. Like I said, I really love the screenplay from Robert Benton. And the editing is great too because, like I said, they just trim all the fat and it just keeps... I love the pace of it. It's very meat and potatoes. The dialogue is very very quippy, for lack of a better term. It's got that sort of... There's a certain rhythm to it that you would expect in a, in a sort of noir mystery. And I like that the film, even though it's a, a bit of a revival... Of an old-timey genre, it doesn't take itself too seriously, and it's, uh, it's awesome. I love it. So after this, in 1978, Superman came out. The first of the series with uh, Christopher Reeve. And he had worked on the script with, uh, with David Newman. David Newman's wife, Leslie Newman, also worked on the script, as did Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather, among many other things. Uh, so the film was directed by uh, Richard Donner, who had done The Omen, he had done The Goonies, or later did The Goonies, I should say. Uh, and he directed, I think, all four Lethal Weapon films. Funny enough, Robert Benton and uh, David Newman in the mid-60s had actually written a book for a, for a Superman musical. It was called It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. And there'd been a stage production of it in the 60s, but uh, it was short-lived, and Robert Benton described it as a very, very stressful experience. So about a dozen years later, he comes back to work on the Superman film, and of course it was a huge success, and it's one of the best casts ever put together, probably ever. If you just look, if you just look down the list of actors in this, I mean, you have Christopher Reeve playing Superman, Margot Kidder, and then it and then it just gets ridiculous. Of so Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, Ned Beatty, Valerie Perrine, who we mentioned in our George Roy Hill episode, and uh, who was in Lenny with Dustin Hoffman, Maria Schell, the great Austrian actress, Terence Stamp, and it just keeps going and going. And like I said, the movie was a huge success, and it was after Superman came out that Robert Benton put out his next film, uh, and this one might be his most celebrated, certainly his most certainly his most decorated, uh, Kramer versus Kramer. And it's a family drama, courtroom drama. So Dustin Hoffman stars in this as a guy who is, whose wife leaves him. He and Meryl Streep are husband and wife. Meryl Streep up and leaves him.
2: Where are you going? Come on, just tell me what I did. That's all. Just tell me what I did that's it's so not terrible. You. not
3: then you. Then what is it? It's me. It's my fault. You just married the wrong person, that's all. I can't. Okay. I can't. I can't. Right, can, can. Let's just
2: go inside. Please. I
3: can't. I tried. I swear. Joanna, please. Now, just. I'm sorry. Now, don't no, you, don't, don't make me go in there. Please, please don't make me go in there. Don't make me go in just, there. If you do, I swear, on one day, next week, maybe next year, I don't know, I'll go right out the window. Oh, please, oh, come, come on. on, now. What about Billy? I'm not taking him with me. I'm no good for him. I'm terrible with him. I have no patience. He's better off without me.
2: Join, please.
0: And the film basically covers him attempting to figure out how to be a how to be a single dad, and he's forced to sort of he sort of, he's forced to sort of pull his head out of his ass after being like a, uh, after being a sort of workaholic, a, a, a total careerist, totally self-involved. His wife leaves him, and he now has no choice but to make a go of this and put his son first and uh, try to make it work and rebuild a new life for himself and his son with his wife gone. And of course, he sort of stumbled his way through this. He and of course, he and his son have a have a bit of a difficult relationship, and his son, of course, is reeling from, from the departure of his mom, his mom leaving him, and um, after all the work the two of them put together, their work is threatened, or this life that they've rebuilt together is threatened, when uh, Meryl Streep's character, Dustin Hoffman's ex-wife, shows up after over a year, demanding custody of their son, and of course, a, a, a bitter and uh, kind of brutal court battle ensues. Hence, the title Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, so this was adapted from Avery Corman's 1977 novel, although Benton wrote the screenplay, the screenplay himself. And uh, the main cast, Dustin Hoffman, plays Ted Kramer. Meryl Streep plays his ex-wife, Joanna. Justin Henry plays their son, Billy. Uh, he was seven years old when the film was made. This was his film debut. He was chosen from over 300 kids. And it's a, it's an incredible performance from him. And we'll, we'll talk about him a little more in a minute. Uh, the great Jane Alexander is in this. She plays a single mother who is... Uh, Who's a friend to Dustin Hoffman's character, and the two of them support each other, and uh, and uh, they they really do have some lovely scenes together. Jane Alexander's great in this, I believe a four-time Oscar nominee. Howard Duff comes back, the great Howard Duff. He plays Dustin Hoffman's lawyer during the the custody battle, and George Coe shows up in this as well. He plays Dustin Hoffman's boss. George Coe actually was in the original season of Saturday Night Live in uh, 1975. And it's a very raw and emotional and unvarnished portrayal of this, this... Just this sort of this family drama. I mean, like you have Dustin Hoffman. He and Meryl Streep are only... You only see them as a married couple very briefly. Just for a few minutes at the very beginning of the film until she walks out on him. And even though you don't see them as a married couple for very long, you see very, very quickly that Hoffman's priorities are a little fucked up. Ted Kramer's priorities are basically his job, his career, himself. And he is so wrapped up in his own his own work, his own his own aspirations... And I guess what he thinks his his duty is as a as a provider, and you have Meryl Streep, his wife who is basically wants to be more than a mother, she doesn't want motherhood to define her she has she wants to be her own person and so she she decides to leave him and leave her son with him and you're basically watching Dustin Hoffman for most of this film trying to trying to build a better relationship with his son, and of course his son he's seven, eight years old, a little too young to understand the dynamics of the dynamics of a married couple and why his mother left. And, of course, he starts thinking that maybe he's to blame for her leaving. And there's, of course, he and his father start butting heads.
2: you remember to bring the chocolate chip ice cream home? Yes, I did remember to bring the chocolate chip ice cream home. And you're not going to have any of it until you eat all your dinner and then need your meat and your corn. Where are you going? Get back here right now. Did you hear me? You better not do that. You'd better stop right there, fella. I'm warning you. Hey! Did you hear me? Now, you listen to me. Don't be smart now. You go right back and put that back until you finish your dinner. Right, I'm warning you. You take one bite out of that, you're in big trouble. Don't. Hey, don't you dare. Don't you dare do that. Did you hear me? Hey, stop. Hold it right there. You put that ice cream in your mouth, and you are in very, very, very big trouble. Don't you dare go anywhere beyond that. Put it down right now. I am not going to say it again. I am not going to say it again. I can't. Ow! Ow, you're me. Ow! Don't you kick me! No, you hurt me. I hate you. Yeah, you're no bargaining, pal. You are a spoiled, rotten little brat. And I'll tell you right now I I'm hate- mad, you and I hate your back, you little shit! I'm all you've
0: got. But the two of them make a go of it. Dustin Hoffman, like I said, he pulls his head out of his ass, he puts his son first, and he does his damnedest to not just be a provider for his son, but to be but to be a dad to his son, for them to have a life together, for them to spend time together and bond and And of course he has he has he has a rough go of it at the beginning, but he he basically works his way towards a, a stable life for the two of them. And after some time, Meryl Streep's character, his ex-wife, comes back, saying she wants to reunite with his son with her son. She wants custody of him, and of course this this terrible, terrible custody battle ensues, and yeah, I won't, I won't say how it ends, because I don't want to give too much. I don't want to give too much away. But it is, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic film, and I think one thing, a very important thing, I think that needs to be mentioned is the nuance of the film, because whatever you think about Meryl Streep's character, sort of leaving, leaving her, not, not leaving her husband, because like I said, he was not, he, he did not appear to be a good husband in those brief moments that the two of them were actually married on screen. But whatever you think about her walking out on her son and then showing up after 15 months and then just demanding custody out the blue, whatever your whatever your thoughts are on that, whatever your stance is, I think it's important to mention the nuance and to not paint Meryl Streep's character as a villain. Because, like I said, she doesn't want motherhood to be the only thing that defines her. She wants she wants to be her own person, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, her methods are a little questionable as far as leaving her son is concerned. But at the same time, the, I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is is that there's always blame on both sides. And that they came to this in part because Dustin Hoffman was not a good husband to her. He was too wrapped, up in his, too wrapped up in his own work, too wrapped up in his own career, too self-involved, too self-absorbed. And it's an interesting film as well because it kind of challenges convention as far as single parenthood is concerned, right? Because it's a rarity in the sense that especially for 1979, you see uh, it's actually a single dad who's at the center of the picture, not a single mom. And the performances are marvelous from every single one of them. Dustin Hoffman is incredible. Meryl Streep. Jane Alexander, her scenes with Dustin Hoffman are lovely. Uh, Justin Henry, who plays their son, incredible, and uh, Howard Duff is great as uh, his Dustin Hoffman's lawyer as well. I, re- I really, really like him in this. And so, the film was produced by Stanley Jaffe. So he and uh, he and Robert Benton reunited for this. Shot by the Spanish cinematographer Nestor Almendros, uh, and he and Robert Benton worked on several films together. This was this was the first in their in their partnership, and. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot there are a lot of stories that have come out of the the making of this film and the shoot primarily over Dustin Hoffman's uh, basically driving everybody batshit crazy. <laughs> but um, before we get into that, let's a uh, couple other production notes. So Justin Henry, like I said, seven years old, his film debut, chosen from over three hundred kids, and he, it's it's a great performance from him, and it, he he's in. He's in a lot of—he's in most of the scenes and some very heavy scenes—and a lot was asked of him. And Robert Benton did something really clever in that because Justin Henry and Dustin Hoffman are playing father and son in the film. In order to sort of solidify or or bring Dustin Hoffman and Justin Henry closer together and establish more of a father-son relationship uh, between them during the making of this film, whatever direction Robert Benton had for Justin Henry, he would tell Dustin Hoffman and have Dustin Hoffman relay to Justin Henry, thinking it would bring them closer together and sort of, you know, establish more of a bond between the two. Really, really, really smart idea. Brilliant idea. And it and it worked. I mean, the two of them are, like I said, fantastic in this.
3: Where are all my toys going to be? The
2: mommies. We're going to take all your toys over there. If you play your cards, with will it should buy you some new ones.
3: Who's going to read me my bedtime stories? Mommy will. You're not gonna kiss me tonight anymore, are
2: you, Dad? No, I, will, I won't be able to do that. But, you know, I'll. I'll, I'll get to visit. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> really? I
3: don't like it. Ew.
2: What do you mean if you don't like it? You're gonna have a great time with Mom. Really, she loves you so much. Dad? Huh? We'll
3: forget Mom. if you can just call me up, okay? We're
2: gonna be okay. Come on, let's go get some ice
0: cream. So Meryl Streep actually was not the original. Uh, she was not in the running for the character of Joanna originally. She had she didn't have a ton of film experience. She had worked primarily in the theater by then. Although she had done she had done the Deer Hunter. She had worked on the Deer Hunter shortly before the making of this film, and she was in a tough place when this film was made because she and John Kazali who was in the deer hunter and the first two godfather films fantastic actor dog the afternoon the conversation the two of them were a couple and john Casali had had um, john Cazally had died in 1978 of cancer in his early 40s he was a young man and she was still grieving over his death and so she went in to, to read for the part of phyllis which was in, which was played by joe beth williams but it's a small part she was not in the running for the role of joanna and like i said she wasn't a, she wasn't a household name by then at that time uh yet somehow when she went in to audition for Stanley Jaffe, Robert Benton, and Dustin Hoffman, she ended up uh, competing for the role of Joanna. And uh, reportedly, she had very different ideas of how Joanna should be portrayed as opposed to Avery, Cor- Avery Corman's novel. For the audience to have a better understanding of her intentions, to make her more sympathetic to the audience. And uh, after that meeting with Jaffe, Hoffman, and Benton, um, I think they, they pretty much all agreed it was unanimous that, uh, that Meryl Streep was right for the part. Although, funny enough, the role was originally offered to uh, Kate Jackson, who was in Charlie's Angels. And she was in Charlie's Angels at this time. <laughs> Although she couldn't get it. she There were scheduling conflicts and they couldn't work around her her shooting schedule for Charlie's Angels. Uh, apparently, James Conn and Al Pacino were both... Apparently, they both turned down the role of Ted Kramer. And I love them both, but I'm kind of happy they did. I can't, I can't really see... Maybe Al Pacino, but I can't really see either of them doing what, what Dustin Hoffman was able to do with this part. And so, they began shooting the film in 1978. And like I said, Dustin Hoffman, <laughs> I suppose in supposedly in the interest of, you know, bringing out the best of his, his co-stars, uh, he engaged in a very sort of, um, in a bit of a battle with Meryl Streep very early on in, th- in the shoot. I think this was only it was the first or second day in an early scene they were shooting together and the film was shot in sequence as well, I should say. So in the order, that, the order of the story that you see on the screen is the order in which it was shot, which doesn't always happen. Uh, during uh, during film productions, uh, but they shot it in sequence in part uh, to give Justin Henry a better understanding of the story and to help him. They thought it would be better for him if the film was shot in sequence. And so anyway, Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep early on in the shoot, uh, they're having a scene together. She is, I guess, they were shooting the part where she walks out on him. And before they shot a, they shot they shot a scene. He abruptly slapped her out of nowhere. And I guess, I don't know. I guess he did it thinking it would conjure some sort of some sort of distress in her that he thought she should she should convey and you know because they're shooting the scene where their marriage is ending and so on and he even went as as far as bringing up john casali and his death and talking about his cancer and sort of taunting her off camera when she when they're shooting her in the elevator and some yeah some really I mean yeah apparently from what I've been able to read he did it, he, to read he did it with the intention of bringing out what he thought was necessary in his co-stars but, but you know what She's Meryl fucking Streep. She don't need that, and Be- and Robert Benton thought so too. I mean, he had he had nothing but good things to say about Meryl Streep's talent and her performance in the film and working with her. And everybody, I mean, pretty much everybody knows, even casual film fans know Meryl Streep knows her fucking business. She didn't need that shit from him. And it wasn't just with her that Hoffman pulled this shit on. He he even tried, <laughs> he even did some things with with Justin Henry. There was a scene. There was a scene where, where they needed Justin Henry to cry. They needed him to, to sob because he's, he's supposed to be in... He's, he's taken a nasty fall and he's supposed to be in terrible pain. And in order to get him to cry, <laughs> Dustin Hoffman went up to him right before they shot the scene. And uh, he basically told him that uh, after the, sh- the shoot was done that uh, they would probably never see each other again. And all this all the crew and all the people working on the film with them, he basically told Justin Henry that, hey, you're probably never going to see any of us again. And of course, Justin Henry, being a seven-year-old boy, started sobbing uncontrollably. So, uh, you know, pretty cruel thing to do to a seven-year-old, but I suppose it got the, it got the desired result. And another thing, uh, so for Jane Alexander's part, um, she actually replaced an actress named Gail Strickland. Gail Strickland was in Norma Ray, and Who'll Stop the Rain, which we talked about briefly in our Carol, Carol Rice episode. So Gail Strickland was uh, originally the actress playing the Jane Alexander part, and she was fired very, very early on in the shoot, apparently because her scenes with Hoffman were so intense for her that she, she 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 couldn't say her lines without stammering, and the scenes were basically unusable. So she ended up getting canned very early on into into production, into the shoot, and uh, Jane Alexander replaced her. And uh, I don't believe Jane, Jane Alexander and Dustin Hoffman had actually worked together previously on All the President's Men. So I think she was a little familiar with the way he worked, and I don't think she had, I don't think she had any complaints about uh, the making of Kramer versus Kramer. And uh, but in any case, the two of them, like I said, they did some great work together, and. It's also worth noting, I think, just for for context, that while Meryl Streep was grieving John Cazali's death during the making of Kramer Kramer vs. Kramer, uh, Dustin Hoffman, who had a reputation for being difficult to work with, he, I believe, had gotten mixed up in some legal battles over the shoots of um, a couple films he had made previously, and he was also in the middle of a separation from his wife Anne Byrne when this film was being made. Uh, which may have contributed to the tension between them. I mean, he and he and his wife are splitting. It's a film about a bitter split and a bitter custody battle between a formerly married couple. So I don't know. Maybe maybe working with Meryl Streep sort of maybe he used he used sort of the the hardship of his own separation in his performance. I don't know. I can't I can't say for sure. But there's a scene between Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman in the restaurant where she comes back and declares she wants custody of her son, and shortly before the the scene was shot. Uh, Meryl Streep made a suggestion of changing the order of the dialogue, uh, of moving up a little speech she had to make to move it up earlier in the scene before revealing that she before declaring that she wanted custody of her son. She, had, she, suggest, she suggested this to Robert Benton, and Benton said fine. Hoffman was agitated at this, even though he was driving everyone nuts. And uh, he basically told the cameraman in secret that he was going to knock the wine glass over. He was going to smack it against the wall, and it would break in a bunch of pieces at the end of its ring. Because, of course, her asking for custody of her son doesn't go over well with him after all the work he's put in to be a single parent and, you know, to make it work. And so they shoot the scene. He smacks the glass against the wall. Of course, it breaks into a bunch of pieces, but Meryl Streep did not know he was going to do this. And her reaction in the, on, on screen is one of genuine surprise. She honestly was not expecting that. She was none too pleased that uh, Dustin Hoffman did not, uh, didn't tell her about this beforehand. I don't
3: know. All my life, I've, I've felt like somebody's wife or somebody's mother or somebody's daughter even all the time we were together i never knew who i was and that's why i had to go away and in california i think i found myself and i got myself a job i got myself a therapist a really good one and uh, and i feel better about myself than i ever have in my whole life and i've learned a great deal about myself
2: such as no, I'm, I'm really. I, I'd really like to know what you learned.
3: Well, I've learned that I love my little boy, and uh, that I'm capable of taking care of him. What do you mean? I want my son.
2: You can't have him.
3: Now don't get defensive. Don't don't try to bully me. I'm okay? not getting or defensive. Get...
2: Who walked out of the house 15 months ago? I
3: don't care. Joe. I am still his mother. Yes,
2: from 3,000 miles away, and just because you sent a few postcards, it gives you the right to come him. back here? I never
3: stopped wanting him. What makes you him? so
2: sure he wants you?
3: What makes you so sure he doesn't want me?
2: Okay, look, we're going to sit here and bat this back and forth like it was for eight, eight years. It's like old times. So well, I'm you can't stupid. deny me access don't to my Don't tell me what I can or cannot do. Don't talk to me that way. I anticipated okay, look, this I don't want
3: to thing. get into this. Look,
2: okay. You're going to have to do what you're going to have to do, and I'm going to have to do what I'm, I'm doing.
3: I'm very sorry about this.
2: Okay, you
1: I... just do what you have to do. Okay.
0: But, to her credit, she never raised a stink, despite her difficulty working with Dustin Hoffman during the making of this film. She never raised a stink, she kind of soldiered on, uh, and she gave an incredible, incredible performance. And Dustin Hoffman pulled uh, that John Cazzali stunt on her again in one of the in a very very difficult courtroom scene as well later on in the film.
2: Your Honor, I would like to ask what this model of stability and respectability has ever succeeded at. Were you a failure at the one most important personal relationship in your life?
3: It did not succeed.
2: Not it, Mrs. Kramer. You. Were you a failure at the one most important relationship in your life?
3: Were you?
0: And so, the results of this difficult shoot were actually, <laughs> were actually pretty incredible. Like I said, it's a great film. It became the biggest do- uh, domestic box office draw of 1979. And this was competing. Keep in mind. Think about this for a second. In 1979, Kramer vs. Kramer was competing with the Star Trek film, Alien, Apocalypse Now, these big, elaborate, intricate productions. And it's, a, it's Kramer vs. Kramer, a family courtroom drama that outperformed all of them in the theaters, which is which is pretty incredible. I mean, it grossed over $100 million domestically. And uh, it got nominated for a shit ton of awards. Uh, it won a bunch of Oscars. They won Best Picture. Robert Benton won both Best Director and Best Screenplay. Dustin Hoffman won Best Actor, the first of two Best Actor awards he'd win in his career. Meryl Streep won Best Supporting Actress. She and Jane Alexander were both nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this film. Meryl Streep ended up taking it. Uh, Justin Justin Henry was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, He was the youngest ever nominee in the history of the Oscars. Melvin Douglas ended up winning for the Hal Ashby film Being There. And um, Nestor Almendros was nominated as well for his cinematography. And there are two, two moments that he shot that I absolutely love in this film. And there, there's no dialogue, so unfortunately, I, I, I can't play the clips for you. There's, there's not much point. There's no dialogue in these sequences, but there's one, there's one sort of towards the middle of the film where Dustin Hoffman and Justin Henry, it's been just the two of them at home for a while. Meryl Streep's character's been gone. Mom's, Mom's been gone for some time, and it's just the sequence, this, the sequence. They wake up on a Saturday morning, and it's one shot, I believe. I don't think there's any cuts in this sequence, and it's a shot on the hallway. The two of them get up. They go out, They get out of bed. The, and again, no dialogue in any of the sequence. They get out of bed. They take turns going to the can, taking a piss. They make their way into the kitchen. Billy, Justin Henry's character, he breaks out the donuts, gets a couple plates, set the table, gives, gives him and his father, each, gives each of them a donut. They sit down. Dustin Hoffman's grabbing the milk and the orange juice, pours, pours a little for each of them. They sit down together. Dustin Hoffman's reading the paper. Billy breaks out a comic book. And the two of them are just having their Saturday morning breakfast, their Saturday morning ritual together and it doesn't look like much but it's very, but it's very important because it's it's indicative of just how they're it's it's just indicative of how they're they're adjusting to to, Mar- to mom being gone they're 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 putting a bit of a routine together and there's another one another wordless sequence and it's just one one it's one take no camera movement just one shot of the two of them they're making their last french toast breakfast together and again this is further this is further down the line more time has passed and they've developed a system. It's their it's their thing. It's what they do together. They have their they have the it's their French toast routine. You have Billy sitting on the counter. Dustin Hoffman's working working the working the skillet in the stove, and Billy's chipping in and handing him this and you know whisking the eggs and so on. And it's it's just it's just indicative of how far they've come in the time that it's been just the two of them. And it's been uh, it's 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 impossible for me to watch that scene. Without without getting choked up, I'm getting choked up now just talking about it. I've seen this movie three times and it, it moves me to tears every time. And so some 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 brilliant performances and, and Nestor Almendro shot those sequences perfectly. Um. So yeah, that about that about sums it up for Kramer versus Kramer. I know we went a little long, but those those production notes I thought were needed to be mentioned. And it's it's like I said, it's a fantastic film and maybe Robert Benton's best. Unfortunately, his his follow up effort uh, wasn't nearly as successful or as good, frankly. Uh, This was called Still of the Night. This came out in 1982. And Roy Scheider plays a therapist who meets an alluring woman, played by Meryl Streep, and he suspects her, or he suspects that she may have murdered one of his former patients. And so it's this murder mystery, and uh, it's basically an ode, it's basically an homage to all the old sort of uh, Alfred Hitchcock suspense and mystery thrillers of old. And there's a lot of little tips of the cap to them. I mean, there's, there's references to the film The Birds, North by Northwest, there's this big elaborate sort of uh, auction sequence at some point. There's also a nod to, to the Hitchcock film Spellbound with Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman because there's this, a big part of the mystery is this interpretation of a dream that Scheider's former patient told him about. But yeah, so it's, it's basically just all these little sort of, all these little throwbacks to the Hitchcock films of old, which I guess is done in homage, but it, but it's it's not a good movie at all, to be honest. I mean, it's it's full of cliches. You know, like the main character forgetting her keys as the killer happens to be approaching on the, approaching the house and closing in on them. And to be honest, um, I, I adore Roy Scheider. I mean, so many great performances. The French Connection, all that jazz, Jaws. Uh, he was in Clute as well. He plays a pimp. I love Roy Scheider. I think he was miscast as a therapist in this, and there's something off about the dynamic between him and Meryl Streep. And Meryl Streep is great. I mean, she's she's incapable of giving a bad performance, and she is one very alluring and it's it's another great sort of subtle uh, performance out of her but um, frankly this is a bit of a dud it's shite to be honest the rest of the cast I mean it's Roy Scheider Meryl Streep and Jessica Tandy shows up the great Jessica Tandy who won an Oscar for Driving Miss Daisy and she was in Butley which is one of my favorite films uh, the adaptation of the Simon Gray play with Alan Bates uh, Joe Grafazi shows up he plays uh, a detective Joseph Sommer plays uh, Roy Scheider's patient who was murdered who was found murdered and Sarah Botsford, Canadian actress, shows up in this as well. So a solid cast, a good director, but I mean, just a just a just a sort of formulaic and cliched <clears throat> murder mystery. And frankly, it's it's not worth the time. And Meryl Streep herself, she's I don't think she's ever gone into detail about this film publicly, but she has taken a couple jabs at it that it just wasn't that it, that she thought it was terrible. And uh, I agree, frankly. Thankfully, Robert Benton rebounded uh, with his next film called Places in the Heart. This came out in 1984. And it's set in the mid 30s during the Great Depression in uh, rural Texas. It's actually set in Waxahachie, where Robert Menton himself grew up. And um, Sally Field plays a widow who's trying to learn how to farm cotton and provide for her kids and save her house uh, after her husband, the local sheriff, is killed suddenly in kind of a freak accident. And kind of like Dustin Hoffman's character in Kramer vs. Kramer, she is, these circumstances, these unforeseen developments, they sort of force her to learn how to do something she isn't familiar with, and she, she has to make a go of it. And along the way, she has the help of of a sort of motley crew of people, uh, including John Malkovich, who plays a blind lodger. She's renting out a room to him in her house. Uh, Danny Glover, who plays a black drifter, who knows a little bit about, about cotton farming, and he she takes him in, and they become close friends. Uh, Lindsey Krauss, who plays Sally Field's sister in the film. I love Lindsey Krauss. We talked about her uh, in Slapshot in our George Roy Hill episode. Uh, and Lindsey Krauss... She also chips in and supports Sally Field, one, while she's grieving the death of her husband, and she also chips in as well, helping out with the kids and farming the cotton and so on and so forth. And Lindsay Krauss, his character, is married to is married to a man played by Ed Harris who is having an affair with the local school teacher who's played by Amy Madigan.
1: Listen, you two, and you got a little announcement we want to make. The next time you two want to play cards with us, you're going to have to go all the way to Houston to do it. Got an offer from an oil company down there. Too good to pass up.
3: You lived here all your lives.
1: Well, don't look at me. It was Vi's idea. <laughs> you know how hard it is to change her mind when she gets it set on something.
3: We're going to miss you Margaret. It's just such a wonderful opportunity for Bud. We just can't pass it up.
0: We're gonna miss you a lot more
2: you're gonna miss
0: us a bit. And so it follows this this motley bunch of people in rural Texas in the middle of the Great Depression, and um, it's a very sweet film about people who don't have very much. They offer what little they can for something that's greater than themselves. And Sally Field, over the course of this pretty much ev- pretty much everything she has to deal with after the death of her husband is new to her. Just providing for her kids, paying bills, finding a way to cover the mortgage, farm cotton live off her land. And through all the bumps and bruises and stumbles, she, with the help of these this, this, little, this little community of hers, she finds a way to make it work. And it's lovely, and uh, the ending sequence is especially see- sweet. It's a lovely ending. I mean, spoiler alert, I'm going to give it away, but the film ends with every character you see in the film, dead, alive, black, white. Keep in mind, this is in the mid-30s. In the South, racial segregation is still very, very much a thing. There's a lot of commentary on that. And you see the sending sequence. Everybody comes together in this community. Black, white, dead, alive. And all of them are just sitting in church, breaking bread together on Sunday. And um, it's lovely. And there's some great performances.
1: Miss Falling, can I ask you a question? Yes. What do you look like?
3: I have long, long hair and I tie it up in the back and I have brown eyes. I always wanted to have blue eyes like my mama, but Margaret got those. And my teeth stick out in the front So I suck my
0: Talk about the cast a little bit. Sally Field, like I said, she plays the lead in this. Lindsay Krause plays her sister. Lindsay Krause, who I love, was in House of Games, David Mamet's first film. The two of them were husband and wife for a time. She was in Slapshot, like I said before. You can hear more about that on our George Roy Hill episode if you'd like. Uh, she was also in Prince of the City, the great Sydney Lumet film, The Verdict with Paul Newman, actually another Sydney Lumet film. And she was in this as well. She got nominated for an Oscar for her performance, and she's great. I always love watching Lindsay Cross. Uh Danny Glover, John Malkovich. Uh, Ed Harris is in this as well, the great Ed Harris. We talked about him briefly in our Carol Rice episode. He was in Sweet Dreams with Jessica Lange. He was in Apollo 13, uh, got nominated for an Oscar for The Hours. He was in History of Violence. You name it, he's done it. and a fantastic, fantastic actor. Uh, Amy Madigan is in this as well. She plays a local school teacher. She was in Gone Baby Gone. Uh, Lane Smith, a really good actor who's had supporting parts in a bunch of things. Blue Collar, the Paul Schrader film, My Cousin Vinny. Uh, he was also in *Prince of the City* with uh, with Lindsay Krause. He plays uh, plays a U.S. Marshal, if I if I remember right. Terry O'Quinn, who you might know from uh, the show *Lost*, he plays John Locke. Jay Patterson, the character actor. He and uh, Robert Benton did three films together. This was the first of them. He plays uh, he plays a guy who uh, runs the local contingent and uh, who also happens to be a Klan member. And you can imagine what happens there. And lastly in a small part, is Bert Remsen, who is, uh, who's a New York guy. He was from Long Island. He did a bunch of work with uh, Robert Altman in the 70s. He was in uh, California Split, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and a couple other things. Brewster McLeod as well, I think. This was actually a very, very personal film for Robert Benton. Like I said, he was raised in Waxahachie. During the Great Depression, he lived through it, so he knew very, very well what it was like to be to be poor in a rural southern town. And the film is set in the town that he grew up in, during the time that he grew up, and uh, they shot it there completely. The film was entirely shot in Hachi. And again, this very personal project of his was very, very well received, got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Uh, Lindsey Krauss and John Malkovich were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Actress Oscars, respectively. Uh, Robert Benton was nominated for Best Director again. And Sally Field... The film was nominated for Best Picture as well, but Sally, <laughs> Sally Field... Uh, ended up winning Best Actress. This was her second win. She had won in 1979 for Norma Ray. And she won Best Actress for this as well in 1984. And there's this famous, famous... <laughs> there's this famous Oscar speech that has now become a source of... Uh, a bit of fodder for ridicule in there. I'll play you a little clip of it.
3: But I want to say thank you to you. I haven't had an orthodox career. And I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it. But this time I feel it and i can't deny the fact that you like me right now you like me
0: and uh robert benton although he did not win for best director he won yet another oscar for his uh his screenplay and uh it's a very lovely film i got to say one that i highly recommend it's one of ben's best and like i said a very personal film for him unfortunately <laughs> yet again he uh ben's follow up ever effort, effort, effort to uh, one of his better successes, was, uh, was not as good. His next film was called Nadine. This came out in 1987. It's, uh, it's a story of a woman played by Kim Basinger. She's trying to track down some nude photos of her. Of her that she had, uh, she had been in a nude photo shoot for some extra money. She's trying to track down the pictures. And uh, she's also trying to divorce her husband, who's played by Jeff Bridges. And in the middle of all this, she gets tangled up in a shady highway development deal. She ends up coming into possession of the plans for it, and there is a um, a local kingpin who is desperate to get those plans back from her. And so, it's supposed to be a rom-com slash, you know, crime comedy type situation, but it really, is, it really isn't very good. It's with Kim Basinger, Jeff Bridges. The two of them are actually really good in this. The two of them are great actors. And Rip Torn is in this as well. Another great actor. He plays the local, the local kingpin who's after. Kim Basinger and Jeff Bridges characters he was a notorious pain in the ass to work with Rip Torn Uh, legend has it and he was also married to the great Geraldine Page as well for a time Uh, Gwen Verdon is in this the great Broadway performer she won four Tonys over the course of her career she played Roxy Hart in the original Broadway production of Chicago and she and Bob Fossey were husband and wife as well and uh, Glenn Headley is in this she has another supporting role Uh, she was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Dick Tracy and she was actually uh, she and John Malkovich were also husband and wife for a time and, uh, Jerry Stiller shows up in a tiny part, may you rest in peace. The great Jerry Stiller from, uh, Seinfeld, King of Queens, uh, the original taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, everybody loves Jerry Stiller, and rightfully so. And Jay Patterson shows up yet again in an, uh, another small part. So it's a really solid cast, but, uh, the movie's a piece of shit, frankly. The story kind of takes a while to get going, you never really feel like there's anything at stake, even though there's this murderous sort of shady character after Kim Basinger and Jeff Bridges. It's basically just, uh shitty rom-com without much of the com, honestly. I mean, it's really, it's really not very funny. And yeah, honestly, just a, really a forgettable entry in the Robert Benton catalog, unfortunately. After Nadine, he made a film called Billy Bathgate. This came out in 1991. And it tells the story of a kid played by Lauren Dean in the Bronx. And yet again, we go back to the Great Depression. This is in the 1930s. He plays a poor kid in the Bronx who meets the Jewish mobster Dutch Schultz played by Dustin Hoffman and gets involved in his his outfit his mob operation and of course the riches and the lifestyle of course are all very appealing to him at the beginning but of course he finds out that Dutch Schultz is a bit of a maniac and the mob life isn't all it's cracked up to be and during all this he sort of uh, there's a, an affair that develops between him and Dutch Schultz's girlfriend who is played by the great Nicole Kidman and uh, this was adapted from a novel by E.L. Doctorow, and the screenplay was done by Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard wrote the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead and wrote and directed the screen adaptation, which came out in 19... either '89 or '90 with uh, Tim Roth and Gary Oldman. So Robert Benn did not, did not write this one. Lauren Dean, like I said, plays the title character. Dustin Hoffman plays Dutch Schultz. Nicole Kidman. Stephen Hill, who was in Law and Order for many, many years and was in A Child is Waiting, which we talked about uh, on our John Cassavetti's episode. The great Steve Buscemi, all time great character actor. If you don't know who he is, shame on you, because you've seen him in at least a few things. Bruce Willis shows up in a small part in this as well. John Costello, who played uh, the late John Costello, who played uh, uh, Johnny Cakes on The Sopranos in season six, uh, a, a recurring and memorable part, and died very tragically, unfortunately, committed suicide. Uh, Stanley Tucci shows up in a small part as well. The great Stanley Tucci plays Lucky Luciano. And Frances Conroy shows up in a very small part. She plays Billy Bathgate's mother. And she was in uh, Six Feet Under, and she was in the Joker film as well. She plays uh, with Joaquin Phoenix. She plays his mother. And she was also in Broken Flowers, the Jim Jarmusch film. Great actress. Uh, however, despite the, the the solid cast that's in this, it's uh, it's another piece of shit. I gotta be honest. I watched it. And what bothers me, probably above all else, is that Dustin Hoffman was terribly miscast as Dutch Schultz for starters Dutch Schultz only lived to be 34 and Dustin Hoffman when this film was made was almost 20 years older than the real Dutch Schultz, Dutch Schultz was when he died yeah Hoffman was in his early 50s and as much as I love him as great an actor as he is he he lacks he lacks the physicality first of all to pull off this performance because frankly I honestly don't buy him as this sort of this menacing mob boss who commands respect and has a hair trigger temper and, you know, is prone to fits of violence and, frankly, I just wasn't buying it and, uh, the music is a piece of shit. The music is terrible. It's sappy, kind of formulaic. It just sounds like your garden-variety background film score and it comes in at all the worst moments. Like, the timing of it is terrible. And, yeah, despite its solid cast, I mean, like I said, Dustin Hoffman was not right for Dutch Schultz. Yeah, it's, uh a forgettable entry in the Benton catalog, unfortunately. However, Benton rebounded after Billy Bathgate with a film called Nobody's Fool. This came out in 1994. And so uh, Benton went back to went back to the typewriter for this one, or the computer, whatever the fuck. <laughs> uh, this was, uh, he did the screenplay for this. It was adapted by a novel by Richard Russo. He's going to come up again later. And it stars Paul Newman, the great Paul Newman, who I love. Uh, he plays an old blue-collar guy, in his sixties, uh, in a small working class town in upstate New York, fictional town in upstate New York, but based on the kind of community that Richard Russo grew up in himself. Yeah, Paul Newman's character, he's he's in this small blue-collar community, he's living with a landlady who was actually his former school teacher, played by the great Jessica Tandy. He's doesn't have much money, you know, plays the trifecta every day, hoping he'll be able to catch in, and he's basically had what many would call a wasted life and you basically follow him over the course of the film as he's confronted with his misspent life, and uh, you watch him try to sort of, in his late 60s, build a relationship with his estranged son and grandson. And his son is a teacher who's recently out of a job, and he's going through some marital problems, and you see Paul Newman and his son, played by Dylan Walsh, sort of gradually and slowly but surely, trying to mend fences, if you will, and have some semblance of a relationship.
1: Sometimes I think you did the smart thing, just running away. I only got about five blocks. Well, you might as well have gone to the moon. You trying to get me to say I'm sorry? No, I know better than that. Come on, pal. Let's go. Tell me something. Do you ever even think about me? I guess sometimes. Yeah. Well, I thought
0: about you all the time. And I think more than that, sort of just stepping back and looking at the the, the the sort of bigger scheme of it, it's basically a depiction of a small dysfunctional blue-collar community in upstate New York, and uh, just these sort of shenanigans and the I don't know the idiosyncrasies, the dysfunctions that sort of that sort of tie everyone together, or even though. Even though pretty much everyone there has kind of a there's kind of a low ceiling. I mean, Paul Newman really doesn't have a lot of options in the film. His character's Sully. I mean, he's, like I said, doesn't have much money. Living with his former school teacher, renting a room from her. He's in his late sixties, he's got a bum leg, and he's still he still has to even at his age, he's and and even with his bum leg, he still tries to sort of he still tries to sort, has to sort of grovel for, for shake construction jobs from his former employer, a nemesis, who's played by Bruce Willis. So really these people don't have a whole lot to look forward to, and yet they're in their own strange quirky way they're they are very much a sort of tight-knit community despite all their foibles and uh, it's another great film and it's it's and again it's a straightforward storytelling but um, it's it's another lovely depiction of a of a community and all its and all its dysfunctions all its quirks
1: and in Norway's rule, it was really about the community of living in a small town, and it was really about being poor. I really mm. am uncomfortable with rich people. I'm really much more comfortable of writing about or filming things about people who are, who are poor rather than rich. I have no sympathy
0: with the rich. And Paul Newman is fantastic as well. And the film kind of ends with him being content. Contentment does not equal happiness. However, he does end up better off than he was before. Even though he is very much in the same spot. He's still living with he's still renting a room from his former school teacher, but he's got a little extra cash in his pocket. And he has he has some people to care about. He has he has he's working on some important relationships in his life and developing some important relationships with his son and his grandson. And so even though there's not much of a way out in that small town community, he is left with some things to look forward to. Uh, and it's a lovely film, and the performances are great. Paul Newman is always great uh and what I love about him I talked about this a little bit in the George Roy Hill episode because he and George Roy Hill did three films together. A lot of actors just have a way of bring bringing a lot of themselves to the parts they play. Paul Newman is one of those actors, and uh i i gotta say, i love that about him. He just has a natural he <laughs> just this sort of natural charm about him uh I don't know what it is there's just something about him these very honest performances where he where he brings himself to the part and it's just all he is I don't know he there's something there's something very endearing about Paul Newman on screen and I can't I can't put my finger on it maybe because I'm not an actor but anyway it's uh, another great performance of his Jessica Tandy like I said shows up in this she plays his former teacher and current landlady unfortunately this was the last film Jessica Tandy ever made she died in 1994 she shot all her scenes but she didn't live she didn't live to see the movie uh the movie come out because she'd been she'd been sick for some time she'd been battling cancer and she had angina as well and robert benton uh he's talked about this in interviews he said they he knew he said obviously he knew that Jessica Tandy was sick and he knew that their their time working together would be limited uh but i don't think he was aware of just how sick she was and uh she's great in this as always and uh yeah, unfortunately, she died uh, not long after the, not long after the her the film was shot, and um, the film is dedicated to her. They give her um, they give her a little homage, a little farewell at the end. A uh, fantastic talent, and her husband as well of many years, Hume Cronin was a great Canadian actor as well, who was in Brute Force with Howard Duff, who we mentioned earlier, and he was in the Postman Always Rings Twice with John Garfield and uh, Lana Turner and a bunch of other great things. In any case, so. Paul Newman, Jessica Tandy, Bruce Willis shows up in this again, and he's actually he's actually pretty good in this. I have mixed feelings about Bruce Willis. Some things I like him, and some things I don't. But he's actually pretty good in this. And it, reportedly, he took he took a pay cut to work on this film. I think he just I think he just ended up getting paid scale for this film, even though he was he was making millions by then. I mean, this is well after he had done uh, he had done Die Hard in 1988. So he was a, he was a bankable star at the time and took a big pay cut to work on this film. His second time working with Robert Benton. Melanie Griffith shows up in this as well. She plays Bruce Willis's neglected wife who uh, has a, a bit of a crush on Paul Newman. The two of them have a bit of a flirtatious rapport and they float the idea of going away together and so on and so forth. Dylan Walsh plays Paul Newman's son, Pruitt Taylor Vince, who's another great character actor, heavy-set guy. He plays Paul Newman's buddy who feels threatened by his his growing relationship with his son because it's been just the two of them for a while. Uh, Gene Sachs shows up. He plays he plays a hack lawyer.
1: Could I give you the keys to the Ford? About an hour and a half ago. Mm. Well, if you get any trouble with it, just take it down to the Texaco station. There's a guy down there by the name of Hero. He's the owner. Just tell him you're my son. Right. You run into problems, drop your old man's name. Watch the doors fly open. Can't believe it's gonna take you that long to get me out of jail. Don't blame me. I'm a Jew. These aren't my holidays. A Jew? Really? I didn't know that. How come you ain't smart? How can I start getting you out of jail when you won't go in? Got a point.
0: Uh, Gene Sachs didn't do a ton of work on screen, but got nominated for Seven Tonies uh, as a director on Broadway, so, did a lot of great work uh, on the stage. Uh, Joseph Summer comes back, he was in Still of the Night. Uh, Benton's earlier film, he shows up in this as well in a supporting part. And a young Philip Seymour Hoffman, the great late Philip Seymour Hoffman, shows up in a supporting role in this as well. He plays a local cop that Paul Newman has beef with. Philip Bosco shows up, he plays, <laughs> he plays a judge, another great character actor. And the great Margot Martindale shows up in this as well. She plays a local bartender. Margot Martindale, great actress was in uh, Justified, the series with Timothy Oliphant that was on FX for many years. She was in uh, August Osage County as well. Fantastic, fantastic actress. I I love her and everything. And so, the film was shot in upstate New York, and uh, the film came out, was very well received, got great reviews, uh, especially for Paul Newman's performance, and he was nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars for this, and rightfully so. Uh, This was in 1994, so Tom Hanks ended up winning for Forrest Gump. Can't be mad at that, to be honest. Uh, and Robert Benton's uh, screenplay also got nominated for an Oscar, and he is uh, he has admitted, I think, in several interviews, that he reworked he reworked this script countless times. I think maybe even a couple dozen rewrites before the before it was actually made. And it's a really good film. Just um, again, another another sweet film, and a lot like not unlike Places in the Heart in a sense. Just a sort of a depiction of a community where there there really aren't a lot of options. But for better or for worse, I mean, pretty much all these people have is each other. Um, yet again, I mean, there's a, there's a pattern emerging, right? You have, Benton makes a great film and he follows it up with a dud or two and then another great film and so, and it just keeps, it just keeps going that way because unfortunately the next film he made was, was not nearly as good as Nobody's Fool. Uh, Twilight, this came out in 1998. It's a murder mystery. So Paul Newman and Robert Benton reunite. Paul Newman plays a washed up ex-cop and former private investigator. And he is friends with uh, a couple Hollywood big shots played by Gene Hackman and Susan Sarandon. And Gene Hackman's character tasks him with what is supposed to be a very simple errand. But uh, soon turns into a whole murder mystery that ties into Gene Hackman and Susan Sarandon's character's shady past. And this was written by Benton and Richard Russo. The two of them collaborated on this. And it stars Paul Newman, yet again, Gene Hackman, Susan Sarandon... Stocker Channing, who plays uh, Rizzo in Greece. I absolutely love her in that. You can say whatever you want about Olivia Newton-John. I love Rizzo in Greece, okay? I don't want to hear nothing about Olivia Newton-John. Rizzo is the shit. I love Stocker Channing in that. Uh, a young Reese Witherspoon is in this as well. A young Liev Schreiber. Margot Martindale comes back in a supporting part. James Garner, who was in the John Frankenheimer film Grand Prix. He was in the Rockford Files. Uh, Murphy's Romance. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito shows up in this as well. Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, lovers know him as Gus Fring, and was in a bunch of Spike Lee films as well. Fantastic actor, The Usual Suspects, and done a ton of great work, a great New York actor. Uh, And M. M. Emmett Walsh, the great character actor, shows up in a tiny, tiny part. Doesn't have any lines, uh, but it's his character's murder that, uh, again, sets this whole mystery in motion. And so, uh, unfortunately, this movie, despite, despite its fantastic cast... It's uh this is another piece of shit I got to be honest. I mean it's it's really formulaic. Just a, just a conventional murder mystery. The twists and turns and the the resolution of it are all it's all very predictable to be honest. And uh unfortunately, they kind of wasted casting Giancarlo Esposito. I mean he's his character really he's really just there for comic relief and uh he really doesn't really he really doesn't serve much purpose as far as the story is concerned. He just sort of comes and goes and And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a waste of great casting, to be honest. And, uh, the movie turned out to be a flop. Mixed reviews, and, uh, it did not make its, its budget back. And that's really all there is to say about this one. It's, it's forgettable. And after this, we move on to The Human Stain. This came out in 2003. It's an adaptation from the Philip Roth novel, uh, which was considered by many to be unfilmable. A lot of people didn't think it could be adapted for the screen, uh, and the adaptation was not written by Robert Benton. This was written by Nicholas Meyer. So he wrote the uh, the Seven Percent Solution in the '70s, and he directed uh, the film Time After Time with Malcolm McDowell and David Warner, and uh, Mary Steenburgen. So he did the screenplay for this, and it follows a college professor played by Anthony Hopkins. He loses his job. He makes a remark in his class that is misconstrued as racist, he gets fired over some PC bullshit. And shortly after his firing, almost immediately after his firing, he, he his wife dies suddenly. And it follows him as he... After the death of his wife and after losing his job at the college in New England, he strikes up a friendship with a reclusive author who's played by Gary Sinise and also strikes up a romance and a tumultuous romance at that with a woman played by Nicole Kidman who has been through... A lot of trauma, has a lot of emotional baggage, and of course their relationship has, uh, is difficult and tempestuous, tumultuous, and they, over the course of their, their relationship, they also have to deal with Nicole Kidman's character's uh, deranged Vietnam vet ex-husband, played by the great Ed Harris. Looks
1: like Monica Lewinsky isn't going to get a job in New York, time being. Can't you avoid the fucking seminar?
3: I don't give a fuck if Monica can't find a job. Does fucking Monica care if my back hurts for milking those fucking cows? Does she fucking care that I have to clean up other people's shit in the fucking post office? You think losing your fucking job when you're about to retire is a big deal, don't you, Coleman? I mean, no, I... I hate to tell you, but it ain't!
2: Having your stepfather put his fingers in your cunt, that's a big deal. Having your husband come up behind you with a with an iron pipe and hit you in the fucking head. That is a
3: fucking big deal! Having your two kids suffocating and dying! That is a big fucking deal! Don't you don't you quit fucking
0: with her? Because you don't fucking know. So you have that story that's set in the present day, and th- you also find out through a series of flashbacks that Anthony Hopkins' character, Coleman Silk, is, has been carrying a secret for much of his adult life. You find out through these flashbacks that the young Coleman Silk, uh, played by Wentworth Miller from Prison Break, you find out that Coleman Silk is actually black. He comes from a black family and has been passing for white for most of his adult life. And after his romance with Jacinda Barrett's character, as a youth, sort of uh, falls apart. And being in the the days of, you know, before the civil rights movement in America, um, the young Coleman Silk renounces his family and renounces his background. And he spends most of his adult life passing, not just for for white, but for a white Jewish man.
3: But aren't you taking a risk having children? The suspense will be unbearable. Suppose they don't pop out of her womb as white as you. Won't you have some explaining to do? Will you accuse her of adultery with a Negro? I have to go now, Mom. Coleman. You think like a prisoner. You're white as snow. And you think like a slave
0: So you find out that's what Coleman Silk's great secret is after he's been fired over an allegedly racist remark you know the the irony of it all and there's you know there's obviously there's commentary on, on political correctness but uh, honestly this movie has its flaws the it, it got mixed reviews mostly because a lot of the critics thought Anthony Hopkins was miscast. Robert Benton I, he did an interview with with Charlie Rose when the movie came out in 2003, and he he insists that nobody else could have played that part the way Anthony Hopkins did. Fine, okay. Uh, But I happen to... I'm going to side with the critics on this one, I gotta be honest. I think Anthony Hopkins was terribly miscast because if you put the two parallel stories, he and the young Coleman silk played by Wentworth Miller, not only do they not look anything alike, one does not look like an older version of the other at all. They honestly look and sound like they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Especially because Anthony Hopkins, great as he is, He's a Welsh actor. He's from Wales, for those who don't know. Uh, and it's kind of astounding that a guy as gifted and as talented as he is, unfortunately, he he uh, he can't do an American accent to save his fucking life. Let's be honest, because he he still has. I mean, you still you still hear those tinges of those Welsh tinges in his speech, and uh, he's supposed to be playing a guy who grew up in New Jersey and New York. And like I said, he and Wentworth Miller, even though they're playing uh the same character at different in different uh different times uh they look and sound nothing alike they don't they there isn't a single thing that uh that makes you think that they're supposed to be the same person i mean obviously you know it it's obvious because you know flashbacks and such but yeah i honestly i gotta side with the critics on this one i thought he was terribly miscast and nicole kimmon is fantastic like she's she's always great and it's a great cast but because of that, because of the differences between the two Coleman silks are so stark, uh, the story comes off as kind of disjointed. And even though you have this sort of, this racial identity element of it, you know, this this black guy passing for white and the whole element of political correctness and those those allegations of racism, you have all that. It's sort of, you have that and you kind of, and, and next to that you have you have his Anthony Hopkins' romance with Nicole Kidman's character, which has all these bumps in the road and all these twists and turns, and there are these heavy emotional moments between them. But yeah, it just comes off as kind of disjointed, like these two stories don't really come together. And uh, yeah, it's, this one has its flaws, I gotta be honest, even though it's, like I said, a fantastic cast. Anthony Hopkins, Nicole Kidman, Gary Sinise, who played Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump, uh, probably what he's best known for. If the great Ed Harris comes back in this, uh, Margot Martindale has a tiny part as a, as a psychologist, Uh, Wentworth Miller plays the young Coleman Silk. He was in Prison Break, like I said, for a handful of years. He plays the lead. Uh, Anna Devere Smith plays uh, the mother to uh, the young Coleman Silk in this. Anna Devere Smith was in uh, the Showtime series Nurse Jackie with the great Edie Falco. I really like her a lot. And uh, Jacinda Barrett's in this as well. Phyllis Newman, uh, another great New York actress. She plays Anthony Hopkins' wife Iris, who dies early on in the film. She dies suddenly. She was in the Sidney Lumet film Bye Bye Braverman in the late 60s. And a young Carrie Washington shows up in this as well, I forgot to mention, uh, in a small part. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic cast. But I mean, there's there were some flaws in, in the screenplay. And like I said, Anthony Hopkins, for all his talents, I honestly don't think he was right for this. And so between The Human Stain and his next film, which turned out to be his last, um, Robert Menton wrote a screenplay, again with Richard Russo, for a film called The Ice Harvest. This was adapted from Scott Phillips' novel. Directed by Harold Ramis, the late Harold Ramis, uh, from Ghostbusters and Stripes and uh, a bunch of other great things. Uh, and it stars John Cusack, Billy Bob Thornton, and Connie Nielsen, who is in uh, The Devil's Advocate and Gladiator. Great actress. And uh, so it's a story, John Cusack and Billy Bob Thornton basically try, it's set around Christmas time, it's set during the holidays, and the two of them try to swindle some cash out of the local mob and uh, Billy Bob's Thornton character has different plans for the the money than John Cusack's character, and shenanigans ensue, and the plot thickens, and you understand. Uh, This was in 2005, and uh, this brings us to the last film that Robert Benton directed, which came out in 2007. It's called Feast of Love, and this is yet another adaptation from a novel written by Charles Baxter, and written by Alison Burnett, and I think Charles Baxter uh, worked on the screenplay with her uh, as well. Uh, and it's basically just uh, it's, it's a love story it, it's many different it's a depiction of several different incarnations of uh, of love uh, within a community of friends in Portland, Oregon that's where the film was set and where it was shot uh, and again, another great cast assembled Morgan Freeman the great Jane Alexander she comes back to work with uh, Robert Benton many, many years after Kramer vs. Kramer Greg Kinnear shows up in this as well uh, Rada Mitchell Billy Burke Selma Blair Fred Word, Fred Ward, sorry, who was in uh, *The Player*, the Robert Altman film, and he was in the right stuff, and he's done a bunch of, bunch of work. And Margot Martindale shows up yet again in uh, supporting part. But that said, and again, this falls into yet another pattern, uh, as we've seen thus far on this show. With every director we've covered thus far, all four of them, um, <laughs> a lot of these guys. I mean, Robert Benton's still alive, but this is this is his last film. He hasn't directed anything since, and unfortunately. They're, a lot of these directors, their body of work kind of ends on a bit of a sad or sour note. Whether it's because the film just isn't good at all, or it's plagued by problems in production or during the making of, or, you know. And a lot of these guys just don't, um, their body of work doesn't really end with a bang. And uh, this is another one of those. It's not, not a terrible movie, it's just not, I don't know, it just really doesn't have anything special to offer besides, I mean, some some good performances, it's a decent... It's a decent love story, a decent melodrama, but really not much else beyond that, to be honest. And uh, that honestly, that honestly uh, wraps up Robert Benton's body of work. And despite the duds, and despite the uh, the sort of, uh, the way his body of work kind of fizzles out, I think he did some incredible work. I mean, like I said, uh, if if you want to just sort of distill his work down to the, down to the best stuff, uh, I would go with, you gotta go with Bad Company, The Late Show... Kramer vs. Kramer, of course, those first three films are, are probably his best. They're incredible. And three completely different genres that he just he just completely hits it out of the park on all three. I mean, you have an acid western to a neo-noir a comedy mystery to a family courtroom drama. I mean, it, it, it's pretty much all over the place, those first three films, and yet all three of them are, are fantastic. And then you've got Place in the Heart as well, and Nobody's Fool. And again, this is, this is going to be another thing. I mean, whether all directors, even the best prolific or not uh, everybody's got their duds Cindy said this himself Cindy was incredibly prolific did close to 40 films I got to say dozens and dozens of them incredibly prolific made a ton of classics but he even he's been quoted as saying uh, look I'm gonna make I'm gonna make dozens and dozens of films and hopefully out of those 30 40 however many they are a handful of them will last and even for directors who weren't nearly as prolific as Sidney Lumet, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much the case for all, all the good directors. You have a handful of great ones who will stand the test of time, and the others, are, uh, they have their flaws. <laughs> but that said, I mean, it's... You want to look at Robert, Robert Benton's career just as a whole, uh, it's pretty incredible, especially given the fact that he's dyslexic. By his own admission, he said himself in interviews, he said it many, many times, can't spell, can't punctuate... And ended up getting started in Hollywood as a screenwriter of all things, with David Newman, and they had, of course, a very fruitful partnership and a very decorated partnership. And it's, it was interesting talking, uh, researching Robert Benton as well, just to sort of give a, a sort of summary or retrospective of his work. He uh, he talked about in interviews, and again, I mean, we talked about this when we were when we were uh, talking about Bad Company. He basically became a director kind of by accident. He thought it would be sort of a you know, a short-lived experiment, and he and David Newman could go back to being writing partners again. And and much like a lot of the characters in his films, he sort of went into a line of work that was unfamiliar to him. And uh, he made it work, and he figured it out. And he, um, he talks about in this interview with the Writers Guild Foundation that one thing that he's learned as a director is to trust the people he's working with. And I know it sounds like a cliché but he tells a great story that parallels this line of thinking from when he worked at Esquire. And basically what it comes down to is you trust your collaborators thinking that they will all hold themselves to a very high standard and that there's nothing that you can ask of your collaborators that they won't ask of themselves.
1: It's part of it is trusting people. is trusting people and letting them make mistakes. Not trying to correct all the details. When I worked as the assistant to the art director of Esquire, one of the best jobs I ever had, a guy came in with an illustration, and and it was okay. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't as good as the guy normally did. And when the guy and the art director said, "Terrific! That's great. Good. Okay," you know, and I said to him after the illustrator left, "Did you?" like that? He said, not particularly. I said, well, why didn't you make him do it again? He said, because if I did, he'd always be working for me, not for himself. And I'm gambling on the fact that he's, in the long run,
0: going to ask more out of himself than I'll ever ask out of him. And that's what you want. And that's become his approach to directing. And I mean, everybody knows making movies, it's it's a collaborative process. And uh, honestly, just from, from the research and what I've read and past interviews and... And accounts and so on. Uh, lots of people who have worked with Minton, Honestly, whatever accounts I've heard from the actors he's worked with, uh, they've all had nothing but good things to say about him. And there is one thread that I would like to that I would like to point out uh, in his work. If there's any if there's any one that I can that I can sort of that I can look at, it's that in a in a handful of his films, you see this pattern where you're watching these characters who are thrust into certain circumstances that they are not familiar with that are foreign to them in some way or another. And you basically have to watch them sort of stumble their way through it for better or for worse. And try to, and try to make trying to make it trying to make it work. And try to get through this this uh, this these situations that they've been put in. I mean you have starting with Bad Company, you have Barry Brown's character, Drew, of course, who's dodging the draft. He ends up in this in this gang of of miscreants, of small-time crooks, this 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 juvie gang, basically, and he he uh, he, he heads west with dreams of becoming a successful prospector, and yet he's uh, he's caught in this no-man's land, in this deserted, sort of barren prairie, trying to, with little choice but to figure out how to survive, and to fend for himself. After that, I mean, you go to Kramer vs. Kramer, I mean, that much is obvious. Dustin Hoffman's character, Ted Kramer, his wife leaves him, he is now a single dad, and he's got to provide for his son and raise him and be a buddy to him and sort of, you know, have a full relationship and give his son a stable home life now that he, now that his partner is gone. And then, of course, you move on after that. You have Sally Field in places in the heart. Of course, her struggles are also very real. Unexpected death of her husband. She now has to learn how to farm cotton and live off her land and figure out a way to provide for her kids and pay her mortgage and save her house. And, of course, she has some some help along the way. But, again, this is all... She even ha- she and Lindsay Crone even have uh, a touching scene at the beginning of the film, shortly after, right after her husband's death, uh, where she admits that she she doesn't even know how to do anything. She she doesn't even know how to pay a bill, and yet she makes it work. And I guess even after that, in some in some of even in the duds, like in, in Benton's later films. I mean, Billy Bathgate, of course, gets involved with the mob, which is a totally foreign world to him, intriguing as it is. And lastly, in the Human Stain, Coleman Silk, Anthony Hopkins, and Wentworth Miller's characters. Uh, well, Anthony Hopkins' character specifically. Even him, he loses his job, he loses his wife, and he en- in he engages in this affair with a woman who is much much younger than his than he than he is, and who has a tremendous amount of emotional baggage has been through has been through hell and is still grieving. She's been abused, and um, Coleman Silk is en- is entering uncharted territory really, not just with not just because she not just because Nicole Kidman's character his girlfriend is much younger than he is, but also just because she is in a very very delicate place. And their relationship becomes very, very volatile, and he's trying to sort of navigate these these tricky waters. Uh, but again, he is determined to make it work. He's determined to live out this to live out this romance because he is he's an older man, and he's convinced that it'll, that it'll be the last great love of his life. And so, I mean, it, I think there's a pattern there. I could be totally wrong. I mean, what the fuck do I know? Let's be honest. But uh, in any case, and these characters who are sort of forced to make it work. I mean, they're, they're or sort of stumbling their way through through their business, they're not unlike Benton himself. I mean, like I said, he was a dyslexic man, couldn't spell, can't, can't punctuate, uh, got a start as a screenwriter, and then ended up working as a director in what he, th- he hoped would be a short-lived experiment. He wanted nothing to do with directing. Like I said, he just wanted to keep writing with David Newman. And um, despite his dyslexia, despite his sort of uh, little sort of attempt at self-sabotage that he tried (laughs) before the making of Bad Company, he not only became a director, but a very capable and very successful director. And he made it work. He made a go of it. Much like many of these characters in his film. His films. And I think that's something to be admired. And on that note, I think that's a good place to end it. That's pretty much all I got, really. And so that's that's the life and work of Robert Benton. Like I said, he is still around. He is 89 years old. uh, Just turned 89 at the end of September, I believe. Yeah, he's still with us. I believe he still lives in New York. He's lived there for decades. Uh, I think he went there... Well, he went there to study at Columbia University. I don't I don't think he ever left. Uh, his wife, Sally Rendig, is a, an artist. She's a painter, and the two of them have been married for well over 50 years, and they have a son. Um, but yeah, that about sums it up for Robert Benton. And with that, I would like to remind you to subscribe to us on the Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts. Please download, listen, subscribe, leave comments if you'd like. Give us some love. And uh, like I said, don't forget, follow us on the Instagram at ClosedSetPodcast. I post updates on new episodes and little nods to, to the films we cover on the show and little teasers for what's coming up next uh, so you can get all your updates on there as well. So please follow us on the Instagram, ClosedSetPodcast. Shoot us a DM if you'd like as well. Those are always welcome. And if you'd like to email us questions, comments, feedback, recommendations, suggestions, whatever you've got, Closed setpod at gmail.com is the email closedsetpod at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for bearing with me. And uh, until next time, take care of yourselves.
1: I never thought of myself as a writer or as a pretty good writer. And I remember the first days of beginning to work. I was going down on, in in those days, on 6th Avenue between Forty. Second and 44th Street, there was a group of used magazine stores, And I was going down to get detective magazines that had stories about Bonnie and Clyde Mm. for research. And I remember thinking, look, I don't know, I've never, I I can't spell, I can't punctuate. I took one creative writing course in college and I flunked that. Um, But Dave knows how to write and, and I can listen to criticism. If I can listen to criticism openly, I can make it better. And then somebody else can create it and it can better. And sooner or later, it will be good enough to sell. The only thing I have to worry about is my own despair. If I can keep myself from giving up, then I'll be okay. And that's as true today as it was then.